they're trying hard and they often feel defeated and frustrated and, and they're trying what they're told to do and it's not working. Not because those methods don't work, but just because they need to change their method based on that dog. Listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. If you consider your dog a family member, then this podcast is for you. Let's celebrate the love and connection we have with our dogs. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. This is a place for us to connect in the joy of loving our dogs, and also a place where you know you're not alone in the difficult times or in the sadness of missing a dog that was an important part of your life. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 29 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. As a quick reminder, if you'd like to be included in the two-year anniversary episode of the Believe in Dog podcast, please send me an email to Erin, E-R-I-N, at believeindogpodcast.com or on social media as a direct message and tell me about the dog who was a healer or a teacher or an inspiration in your life. Maybe they helped you through a hard time or inspired you to step outside of your comfort zone. Whatever it looks like in your life, if you have a dog that you'd like to pay tribute or say thank you to, please let me know and we'll include it in the next episode. I'm so excited for you to meet today's guest, Billy Groom of Saskatchewan, Canada. Do you remember those commercials that were on TV a few years ago? I think it was for Dos Equis Beer, and it would have this kind of gray-haired, silver fox, debonair gentleman who was the most interesting man in the world. I think Billy is one of the most interesting women in the world. I'm so grateful I was able to connect with her and learn more about the work that she's doing, and I'm really excited for you to hear her story. Billy Groom is a dog behaviorist, or a dogologist, but not a dog trainer. There's a difference. Billy created the Upward Dogology Method of Working with Dogs Behavior, which is based on the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I don't know about you, but I'm familiar with because of my therapist. Like me, Billy didn't really grow up around dogs. It was as she got older that dogs started finding her, and she started finding herself working with dogs that had behavioral issues. And she had a lot of success in dealing with dogs that had especially fear-based or aggression-based, which can also be fear-based, behaviors. And as she started talking with people in the industry, such as veterinarians or veterinary behaviorists, and trying to reverse engineer her methodology and how she was so successful, that's when she realized that it was cognitive behavioral therapy she was doing instead of traditional training methods such as positive reinforcement. So Billy's going to share with us the difference between what she does with cognitive behavioral therapy versus traditional training methods. And we're going to talk about how her methodology evolved over the years and how driving across the United States in a renovated bus with your boyfriend sounds a lot more romantic than it actually is. So let's get started with Billy Groom of Upward Dogology. So I am here today with Billy Groom. Hi, Billy. How are you? I'm great, Erin. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. <laughs> and you have created Upward Dogology. And 
I'm really excited to talk about how you're using cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs. But I do always like to get started and just ask about if you grew up with dogs and if you were always an animal person or if it's, it's something that came later in life. That is a good question. It is something that came later in life. I did not grow up with animals. I didn't really grow up with a, a family as such past seven. I think when I was, well, I know when I was very, very young, we had a dog. But no, it, it came about more in my ooh, early 20s, in my early 20s, where I felt compelled towards the rescue dogs and to take in rescue dogs. And, and I'm, I'm not really, I, now in my later life, I'm in my mid fifties. I do know more about why that occurred, but at the time I just, I wanted to take in some dogs and I did that. And I just continued to do that and traveled through the States and did it. And, and then I had a daycare and boarding it, it but it really, it wasn't an intentional profession it always came from an animal advocacy point more so. I just learned that people were struggling with dogs in the adolescent stage and, and dogs with checkered pass. And I mean, back then there's not internet and the, the rescue organizations weren't the same as they are now, but they were struggling with those dogs that were over six months or ones with checkered pass. And I just wondered why people perceive them so differently and why people had such a hard time integrating them into our lives and where the block was. So I just, it became my mission to find a solution. I don't know if it was that solidified in my head, really, but I wanted to find out why they were, why we were so challenged with them and we couldn't understand them and, and create a solution that kept dogs out of shelters and kept them in good homes and integrated them into good homes and kept them off the euthanasia table. And that turned into a 34 year career unintentionally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dogs definitely have a way sometimes of taking us in places we weren't expecting to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I saw a story that you actually took a class one time where you were asked to write about something that changed your life and you wrote about finding your dog on a beach and your teacher didn't like that. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, you were diving pretty deep there. Yes. Uh, yeah, that goes back. Uh, that goes back a long time. And I did. And I was taking a creative writing course. Uh, just it was through a university. And that was the subject is to write about something that was life changing. And he didn't even bother to read it because he didn't feel that finding a dog on a beach was life-changing. And yet that was one of the first dogs that I found, if not the first dog that I found. Finding a dog is sort of a, a loose term too, because dogs find you when you find them or whether you adopted it or rescued it. or. Um, but yeah, that one was just on a beach uh, hiding under a log. And that dog did change completely. Uh, yeah, I just realized what, what really hit my heart. Yeah, I mean, adopting a dog is one of the biggest things that has affected my life. So I guess I'm so shocked by <laughs> how somebody... Yeah, I actually rehomed that dog quite quite early in the process. And I realized 
that's where I, a strength is for me that I can bring in dogs and rehabilitate them and rehome them. Rehabilitate such a harsh word, but you know, work with them and figure out what home's best for them and figure out how to get them into a good home and stay in a good home. And I really felt so rewarded by that and so thankful that this great family took this dog. And then it just turned into literally thousands of dogs later. I just, I like doing that. And I like knowing that they have a home and that they have a family and that family's the right family for them really makes me really happy. So I actually didn't keep that dog. But it still doesn't mean it's any less life changing. <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, it was more life changing because that's, that's really what it became about to me is being able to, to get dogs into their right home and help other people bring dogs into their home and not be challenged. I mean, adoption, rescue's tough. Rescue is tough, but adoption shouldn't be. Adoption should be comfortable and easy and not, not, and that's why I like cognitive behavioral therapy because it works very well with dogs that are over six months of age and ones with a checkered past, preconceived thought patterns. That's not just with dogs, that's with humans as well. And it, it, it allows for us to recognize what they already know, harness their skills, and easily integrate them into our homes. And it is, it is, Upward Dogology is a formula. It is a, a process and a formula. And the way that my clients apply it depends on what their, what their needs are and, and what, uh, what their goals are and, and their dog and their situation. And so I, I liked one of the things that I, I've seen you say is that, you know, you know that people have good intentions when they adopt a dog, but then sometimes things get out of their control or it's beyond the control of the owner to know how to deal with that. And and you have such uh, an affinity for kind of working with, with people in that place. Yes, it, it can be challenging. And alternatively, or additionally, people get a dog as a puppy and they do everything right. They do all the right puppy. They do all the socialization, the puppy training. They get the dog house trained and, and crate trained if they, you know, all that stuff they've done right. And then the dog hits adolescence and some dogs are great. There's very little change in behavior and they continue with uh, those methods that they're using, just like kids in the same family. And other, other times it and it is even irrelevant of how experienced the people are, because if they're experienced with conventional techniques, but that dog uh, is not no longer responding to those conventional techniques, which happens a lot. So, so I deal, I, I work with both sometimes, but they all have good intentions, whether they're adopting a dog or whether they get the dog from puppy, their intentions are good and they're trying hard and they often feel defeated and frustrated and, and they're trying what they're told to do and it's not working. Not because those methods don't work, but just because they need to change their method based on that dog. I really love the term that you've used, uh, checkered past, uh, dogs yeah. with checkered past. Uh, what does that mean to you? Mm, that's a good question. No, I would say not the standard upbringing where they received uh, proper guidance and direction, and which is in the dog world called training. <laughs> uh, but they 
they may have lived on the street and learned on their own how to survive and learned on their own behaviors that they need to do to keep them alive or achieve their goal, get food, stay safe, um, stay, stay warm. A, a, a checkered pass could be just not being exposed to uh, proper socialization, for lack of a better term, you know, having having a person on the other end of the leash take you out and, and show you what what uh, people and dogs and bicycles and, and the world is all about, they just haven't had that, that opportunity. So it doesn't necessarily mean they were physically abused. But a lot of them have been a lot of dogs I've worked with have been. They could also uh, you know, I, I work with the dogs in Spain, from Spain, who were used for rabbit hunting, the Galgos. And I would say their upbringing is, it's conventional for there and for what they're doing, but to bring those dogs into a home when a lot of them have never been in a home and they've never been conventionally socialized, they've been used strictly as dogs for uh, rabbit hunting, Galgos. So I would consider that, I wouldn't necessarily, some of them were treated better than others, that's for sure. And then, you you know, I've worked with ones from the Korean meat market that gets saved from there, or the fighting rings, uh, streets of Mexico. Um, I've worked with dogs from Northern Canada where they're in reserves. So it, it really, it's just, I guess I would put it as an unconventional background. A lot of times when you look at sort of traditional dog training methods, I, the words I've written down, and I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I have like, there's like conditioning and reinforcement. Those are kind of the terms maybe you can kind of use interchangeably, or at least in my mind, you can, <laughs> in my non-professional uh, yeah. mind, you can. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking yeah. back to like Psych 101 and Skinner, and you have like the quadrant of like, you know, <laughs> positive, 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 negative, negative. And, and so that's where um, more traditional dog training methods come in. And so you're trying to, you know, create a positive, either create a positive association with like, here's your crate, you go in there and you get treats. Or, you know, or it's a reward based thing where it's like, if you sit, you get a treat or, you know, yes, or click or, or something like that. And, and there's a lot of situations that that works really great for, but then there's situations that it doesn't. And I'm imagining those are the people who are end up contacting you. That's <laughs> exactly right. And you're yeah. trying to say, you know, and you're saying, oh, I'm coming at this from a whole different angle, which is this CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I was researching into this because I've actually used this myself um, with my therapist. Um, <laughs> if anybody's listened to episode one of the Believe in Dog podcast, I talk about therapy. <laughs> and uh, for me, CBT, I look at it as like a solution-oriented method. So nobody's sitting there and asking you to like lay on a sofa and talk about like, you know, your mother or anything. It's just kind of like, you know, I think that's what some people think therapy is or something, but this is like a very solution oriented. And so I was trying to come up with a good example for everybody. And I had one recently, so I thought I would just kind of share this. I was having a conversation with my husband not too long ago, and I was kind of telling him that I was having this bad day 
and he's kind of looking at me because it's a weekend and I was reading and he's like, how is that a bad day? And I said, well, I just keep thinking of all the things I should be doing. Like I should have done this. I should have done that. I, you know, I should be more productive. I should be doing this. And, and now I feel like bad about myself. I've wasted all this time. I've wasted this day. And, and he's kind of like, why are you doing that? <laughs> like, why are you thinking that? <laughs> and, um, and I guess it never occurred to me before that, that like, why am I doing that? And so I actually had a, a therapy session around this and, and she called it, um, shitting all over myself she's like why are you shitting all over yourself and uh and I was kind of like oh well you know why am I doing this and I I it was the first time I had really become aware that I have like this kind of pattern of of thinking this pattern of behavior and it doesn't make me feel good it you know I feel it doesn't encourage me or motivate me or make me more productive it just makes me feel bad about myself and and she was kind of like walking me through like well you need to catch this and be compassionate towards yourself and say I'm doing the best I can everybody needs a break sometimes set a goal for okay I'm gonna read for the next half an hour and then I'm gonna get to work and so that's what I've been trying to do is really you know when I feel myself start to go down this should spiral I'm like oh stop you got to interrupt the pattern and then kind of redirect and you have to be willing to make that change also which is like Sometimes where the other laying on the sofa part of therapy comes in but when you don't want to make that change. But anyway, I was I was hoping that that would be a good example of cognitive behavioral therapy and how it can be applied in people. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> Absolutely. It's a great comparison. And a lot of my clients, once we start working together, will tell me about their therapist or situations themselves, oh, or even with their, maybe their child or maybe a, a, a coworker. And, and they'll say, wow, I guess, I guess that's what we're doing is forms of cognitive behavior, or they're very familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of my clients, well, a lot of my clients are veterinarians or they're psychologists or social workers. They really relate to it. They're yeah, because it is its platform and principles. So conditioning methods have their platform and principles and cognitive behavioral therapy has their own set. Now, those can overlap. I mean, there's some uh, points with therapy that are just across the board. But the situation that you explained, absolutely. So what, what your therapist is doing is providing you with skills that allow you to reset your own brain, that allow you to recognize when you're thinking thoughts that are determining your behavior that you feel maybe is not in your better interest, like stressing out that you're not getting something done, which is, I think, also just inherent in being a motivated woman and entrepreneur. There's probably a lot of people listening to this podcast going, wow, that's so me. But it, but it is true. And 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 it, it is a different way of approaching uh, rehabilitation that people really quite resonate with. I, I really do. I really like it. I even do it with my clients as well. I, I provide them with skills that allow them to make decisions instead of telling them what's what's right and wrong and what they should and shouldn't do with their dog or their lifestyle or their family, uh, with family, with their dog, obviously. Um, but yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy is, I just really, really resonate with it. I'm not a professional in conditioning methods, but getting back to, to your other point, uh, yes, conditioning methods 
are very effective and you went back to Skinner and then there's, there's Pavlov and the four quadrants and all that. Uh, that's not my area of expertise, but I have like yourself taken the time to learn about how they work as a whole and to get back to a, a point you said earlier about reinforcements. Yes. Conditioning methods rely on reinforcements. That's, that's how they work. So you're reinforcing behaviors and whether how that's done is different with different trainers but the the concept is that uh, they're encouraging wanted behavior and discouraging unwanted behavior through reactive reinforcements whereas cognitive behavioral therapy uses skill sets to change perception to change behavior which is what your therapist did with you changed your perception of how you feel about taking your day off I have this terrible drawing in my notes that I, I saw something on line where it's basically like a triangle and each side of the triangle has arrows going both ways. And it says like thoughts, feelings, behavior, you know, is sort of yeah. the, the triangle of this. And so for a dog, what we're trying to do is change the dog's thought pattern about something that's causing a reaction and then a, usually a, like a fear-based reaction. Commonly, yes. CBT works really well with aggression and anxiety and fear and behaviors that that are stemming from that. And that's partly because those emotions and those that intelligence and the behavior that comes from cognitive skills, it, that, that's what they're coming from. They're, they, they have it. So puppies have cognitive skills. I only work with dogs that are six months and older, which doesn't mean puppies don't have cognitive skills. They do. Uh, commonly, those cognitive skills lead to good behavior like learning house training, right? Which conventional conditioning technique is a dream at. Commonly, if you get a dog front at a puppy and you apply uh, conventional techniques, uh, balance training or positive reinforcement training, however you want to do it, it, it's quite good at teaching house training. Um, but if you get in a dog that, that might be older and you might need to use cognitive behavioral therapy for the house training. So it's not so much the issue as just how the, how the dog's brain is processing in order for that behavior to occur. So if the behavior is occurring because of cognitive thought patterns and skills, then you, then you would want to use cognitive behavioral therapy to address it. I don't know if that answered that question or if that went off a little bit but <laughs> there's so much to talk about <laughs> yeah um no that's exactly what i wanted to to explain and, and make get the point across is that you would use cognitive behavioral therapy not to say like it's perfect in to teach this skill it's more about it's very specific to the dog and so that's why you can't necessarily say like, oh, well, it's easy. You just do this and then do that. You know, it's it's very much based on on your dog as an individual, um, what kind of baggage they may be carrying, how that's affecting their behavior. And so that it's very individual for the dog, even though there's like a common, I think platform is the, the word that you're using. Yeah. Right? yeah. So what upward dogology does is just take, put it into a formula so that people can apply it. So that's the same with positive reinforcement training. When people go to school to learn um, conditioning methods, whether they're, you know, and some, some trainers prefer counter conditioning or classical conditioning. And so they, they find their own way that they like and what works with them. And 
for me, I just really like cognitive behavioral therapy, but what upward dogology does is put it into a, a formula. Now, when I'm working with clients one-on-one, -on -one, I'm not, you know, I try not to be boring and take them through, this is the formula and you have to do this. I mean, it's, it's very personal. We have a good time, uh, but I know in my mind what questions I need to ask them, what information I need to get, and then how to formulate that to, to then regurgitate information back to them. And then they give it back to me and I give it back to them and, and we go through it like that. So they're not learning cognitive behavioral therapy for canines as a, as a course, you know, they're not going to be able to take what they've done and then be able to rehabilitate everybody's dog. It's, it's, it's specific to them. And so how did you learn this? <laughs> yeah, I did it backwards completely. <laughs> no shocker there. <laughs> I, I seem to do everything backwards. Um, so I learned it from dogs. I never studied dog training. I never intended to be a dog trainer. I, like I said, I was really interested in learning why rescue organizations and adopters and people were challenged with dogs in different situations and why um, conventional training was limiting. And again, not with every dog and not because those methods don't work. They do, but they don't work with every dog. So that was just my goal. It wasn't... And so I just brought in lots and lots and lots of dogs into my home. <laughs> At one point, I was living in 420 square feet, 450 or something. It, and I've always lived right in urban areas. You know, it, it's not like I had these shelters or, or kennels or anything. They were right in the home with me. I just learned from them what worked. And then people were recognizing what I was doing, and they were asking me to help them. And rescue organizations were asking me to work with people who were contacting them to surrender their dog. And then once we worked together, they didn't need to surrender their dog or veterinarians were, you know, feeling stressed because they were perhaps no other option than to euthanize a dog. So they would ask the people to contact me. So by virtue of this, I've been a behaviorist and that's what I do. But it's only been recently where I think it was an, an explosion for one with mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy in, in other areas, workplaces and, and with family and with online social media. And, and what happened was people were, were saying to me that, that my method is cognitive behavioral therapy. And I, I knew it was different, especially once positive reinforcement training hit the scene and as well, uh, some other, uh, other methods that are not at all what I, what I'm interested in, but the, the alpha and the dominance. So you start to learn about these other methods. My clients are telling me about these other methods and they're just not at all what I'm doing. They're not the platform that I take. I can see where they're working or at least the, the balance training and the, the positive reinforcement training. I can see where it's working. So I started to study and understand why what I'm doing is working. Why? So it, it really was taught to me by the dogs and then formulated as the years went through, as I went through the years and I started to formulate it. And I wrote actually a book that has never been published, but it helped me formulate the methodology and, and put it into 
terminology, which I've never been a terminology person. I'm a rather free spirit. I'm not big on it. I'm not big on rules. I'm not big on terminology. But at some point, if you're teaching, teaching a methodology to people, you do need to have some amount of structure and, and formula and terminology. And that's when I really started to learn a lot, a lot more about it. And that's just been a very, very interesting part of my career talking to psychologists and psychiatrists and animal scientists and veterinarians and really learning more in-depthly about what I do. And you really specialize, I think you said, in in like dogs that have issues with fear, anxiety, aggression. So people are coming to you. I'm, I'm just imagining, and I've listened, you know, you have a, a podcast too, which I'll, I'll wanted to mention, but I've listened to some of the episodes where people have talked, you know, they've been to one, two, three, four different trainers and paid for boarding trains and, and tried to do all these things. And sometimes their veterinarian is recommending euthanasia, behavioral euthanasia, and people are coming to you in a really emotional state, I'm imagining, and, and have really kind of been through a lot. And, you know, I'm just imagining that you're probably dealing with a lot of emotional people and a lot of emotions um, when you're hearing people's stories and, and how they're getting to you. Is that something that affects you? Like, do you have to have a filter or an armor, you know, to kind of <laughs> protect you from kind of taking on this kind of stuff? That's such a great question. Nobody ever asked me that question. And it's, it is. I mean, it's very rewarding what I do. It is upsetting more because the, the system and the, the dog training world, I guess, for or mainstream dog training and the, and the system, you know, really needs to incorporate canine cognitive behavioral therapy, upper dogology, because people need it and dogs need it and they deserve to have those options. So of course, years ago, when my business was, it's always been very busy, hundreds of clients a year and I learned from them and, and it's just been great. And of course, that's always a rush when you're, when you're just loving what you're doing and you're saving dogs and it's so great. But yes, at, at some point it, it does, it does get a little trying when People say to me, wow, Billy, you really have to get this out there. I would have put my dog down or I tried everything that, that I hear all the time. I've tried everything. And again, it's not that those methods are, are wrong or bad or ineffective. It's just that stage in the dog or what that dog, that, that learning method that dog prefers based on the reason for the behavior or that dog's personality. And yes, it does get it does. It does get hard when I am trying to, to get it out there and make it mainstream. And of course, there's some doors that are closed. And I've also, on the same note, met some wonderful people, such as yourself and, and other people that really are welcoming to it and, and do understand. Clients are always, clients Clients love it. Clients, uh, potential clients look into it and, yeah, this is exactly what I need. And they're open-minded and they want to try something new because what they've been doing isn't working. Now, they don't blame their trainer. They're not saying their trainer is a bad trainer. They're just saying the method itself just isn't working with their dog. But their trainer is certified and very good at what, they're, what they do. And then they're realizing, right, it, it's, it might be a different trainer, but it's, it's the same type of method. They do it a little bit differently, as you were talking about earlier. But it, it, bottom line, it's, it's the same methodology. It follows the same principles and platform. So they're quite happy 
to, to find something different and new. And then of course, when it works, then they're really happy. So my, my um, happy places with my clients for sure. Uh, but I, I do, I really would like to share it on a larger scale. And in order to do that, I feel it's best to have the support of the influential organizations and the, the, the people that do influence the trainers and the trainers influence the people, um, the regular dog owners, for lack of a better term. Uh, so I, 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 yeah, I do, I do find sometimes when I'm reaching out to influential organizations, if they're not seeing the value in it or not, not, not seeing the value in, in sharing it on a larger scale, it, it can be difficult because often in the same day, I'm contacted by people, uh, you know, who they're all trying to help. We're all trying to keep dogs out of the system and off the euthanasia table and keeping them in good homes and providing homes with education and ability to help their dog and overcome uh, issues and lead a happy life with their dog. So we all have the same goal. So it can be emotionally <laughs> difficult sometimes on days. Yeah. I can imagine. And I guess it's so interesting to me because, you know, obviously in human psychology, there's so many different theories and methods. Not everybody is a Freudian, you know, therapist. <laughs> so strange to me that we wouldn't be more accepting of oh well if there's these types of trainers and then there's this type of behaviors for other situations so I, to me it just seems to make so much sense so it's, it's so interesting to me that that you you do face resistance or skepticism or, or whatever <laughs> I agree I I was surprised myself because clients are so open to it and talking with veterinarians and this I mean it is partly my fault where I didn't uh, take that leap of getting it out there on a larger scale earlier. I'm not a social media uh, guru. I don't uh, do everything right on social media. So I probably should have started it earlier and collaborated with um, scientists and you know, labs who are studying, um, you know, people in, in labs and scientists and veterinarians, behavioral veterinarians who are studying dog cognition sooner. I, I probably should have done that or written articles. I, I just didn't, I, I was spending more of my time figuring out what I was doing and perfecting what I was doing and, and teaching it to people. Because when I teach it to people and they teach it to their dogs, I learned so much about how people learn it, how to explain it to people. You know, so a lot of that is, is on me. I should have started that earlier and collaborated earlier. Well, it's never too late is what I believe. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, and it, you know, truthfully, I had a really good thing going just working with the clients. <laughs> My business was busy. It's rewarding. Uh, people love it. You know, I have veterinarians referring me and clients referring me, and and it, it's a it's a great great thing. And and it's a whole different ball game getting it out there on a larger scale and reaching out and and getting yourself out there and and uh explaining it on a different level explaining it to clients one on one is you know is just after hundreds of clients per year for decades it's very natural and and it's, you know easy i guess is a word or in my comfort zone i guess is a better way to put it it's in my comfort zone but i am an introvert and 
you know, I like the one-on-one. So to then talk about it on a greater scale and reach out to people that perhaps, you know, aren't as interested or think they're not as interested in learning it as clients. When clients are coming to me and and, and they've sent me the email or they've sent me the phone message or text, they want to, they're looking for a solution. They want a solution. But to reach out to people that perhaps... Um, don't feel I have that solution or are not interested necessarily in finding a solution, that's, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. I, I, there's so much going on with dog cognition right now. And there's even like a website, I got this pretty handy dandy chart from called dog, <laughs> dognition.com. And it talks about like the five elements that they define as, you know, affecting cognition in dogs. So they have it defined as memory, which is storing past experiences to make future choices, reasoning, inferring the solution to new problems, communication, which is using information from others to learn about the environment, cunning, which I actually thought was interesting, which says using information from others to avoid detection, and empathy, Mm. reading and responding to the emotions of others. And I have seen all of these things in my dogs. I was <laughs> thinking of the cunning one We, with our old girls, Lucy and Kalua. Lucy used to really like getting comfy in the crate, but sometimes Kalua would be in the crate. And so then Lucy would like come and bark at something at the front door and Kalua would come running out like, oh, what was that? And then Lucy would like go run and get in the crate and get in the comfy spot. I'm assuming that's some form of cunning. (laughs) Yes, that is cognition because they know an action has a result. And when they learn it works, they're going to keep doing it. And that's why we have to change perception to change behavior because they're just like people. If something works for them, they're going to keep doing it. And if they don't see a reason to change, they're not going to. That is, that's, that actually takes me back many years to a a boyfriend I had a long time ago who my dog at the time, I, I got her from a ditch in Texas. Yeah. And she is smart little thing. She, she would go up and stare at him just with her piercing little black beady eyes. And, and he would look at her and say, Oh, do you want outside chance? And, and so she would like do a little tap dance. So he would get up to go let her outside and she would take his spot on the couch. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, you know, so she, she figured out how to get, get her spot on the couch that she likes. So I haven't thought about that story for a long time, but yeah, he would always say that my dog is smarter than him. And maybe that's why that relationship <laughs> <laughs> didn't work. Right? <laughs> yeah, there's probably lots of reasons there. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned being a free spirit. And one thing that I, I heard in your podcast is where you talk about kind of driving around in a van throughout the U S and you're from Canada. Yeah. Have you, yeah. Like, were you born in Canada? Yeah. And you just kind of drove around and you lived here and you lived in uh, North Carolina. Carolina. And I was just like, I but like, first of all, that sounds like so exciting, you know, you know, romanticizing, you know, it, like, it's not, it, it wasn't, <laughs> it was not nearly as romantic as <laughs> well, a little, a little bit. Yeah. I was with a, a guy at that time, uh, that I had met in British Columbia, Canada, but he was from Texas. So we renovated a bus and, and drove down and I had one dog at the time and he had two and just on the way down. And, and again, it sounds so romantic. It really wasn't. But on the way down, we, you know, there were dogs that were just abandoned and pen- And so that I would say was a formula to time for me of learning that that is something of interest to me. These, these dogs that are just abandoned or given up on, 
people don't know how to relate to them. People, people are nervous to bring them into their home. People are, they don't feel as though they have the skill set to do that. Taking in a dog with a checkered pass can be, people can be nervous to do it. They want to help. They really do. So, yeah. So then we were in, in Texas and there were, um, you know, dogs there and went to North Carolina. I had 24 acres and I swear the dog, it was not in a, in a, it was in a, a very, you know, people had more guns than teeth in that area. It was, it was, it was an interesting area, but there were dogs that would just show up, just, just show up on the property. And I swear they would go out and say, Hey, you got to come to this property. <laughs> like, this is great. There's this couple there and they, they feed us and it's great. And you know, you just, you, you learn when you have all these dogs and there's the dynamics and they have different histories and paths and, and you need to make it, make it work for them. They all got into good homes and yeah, that goes back a long way too. That was before I came back up to Canada where I had the uh, daycare and boarding, which was very, very uh, interesting in learning about how, how people in urban areas, where their challenges are and what their expectations are and how they work with their dogs. And I had uh, lots and lots of clients. It was a very successful business. And this was before it was trendy. You know, this was before there were really off-leash dog parks. Uh, I just made up my own off-leash dog park, which, you know, wasn't everybody's favorite. <laughs> but I would walk, you know, 10 tall, tall dogs off-leash in, in parks that were just outside the city area, which is now amalgamated into the city. But, uh, you know, now it's, oh, you can't do that. Or, you know, it's just a very structured uh, profession now. Whereas when I did it, it, it was not, it was very new and not, not structured. You certainly do learn a lot, you know, in a small home with a lot of dogs and the dynamics. With us, you know, I, I didn't have a dog until I was 25. And that was my first girl, Lucy. And then about a year and a half later, we adopted uh, Kalua, which was just kind of like somebody that knew my dad found her and my dad's Aww. like, oh, um, my daughter loves pit bulls. And so, you know, this is kind of how we ended up with Kalua. And having the two of them together and like seeing how they interact and communicate. I mean, it blew my mind, you know, cause we had had just one dog yeah. and Lucy and I loved her and I was learning about her, but like just seeing the two of them together, I learned so much and, you know, became so much more interested in, you know, behavior and how they, you know, communicate and, and started reading all these books and everything. And it, it was, it's really fascinating to see multiple dogs, you know, live together and, and, and how they, they get through the world together. And they were, I mean, they, you know, they would chase rabbits in the yard and watching them, like they had a whole system and it was, it's just very fascinating. It is fascinating. I, I love watching. Well, my last podcast episode, season five, people are really liking it. It has a lot of studies and different studies on dogs and uh, how their cognitive abilities are not bad or good. And, and, people tend to divide behavior, you know, good behavior, bad behavior, but if it's all stemming from cognition. So I, t I talk a lot about that. I mean, just as simple as, you know, the dog learning that uh, when they put their paw on your garbage pail, where your foot lever would be, that it opens the garbage pail. There's lots of dogs that know how to do that. They watch you do that every day and they know that there's chicken wings in there, but they choose to not disrupt your garbage pail and get into the garbage. You know, if you go out at a time that maybe they don't think is right and you shouldn't be going out, 
they might go do that because they're intentionally knowing that it's what you don't like and they know how to do that based on cognitive skills. Other dogs might choose to not do that. They know it's wrong and they choose not to do it. The same dog could choose not to do it at certain times and other times. So and then my most recent one, I talk about that in one of the, the episodes. I, I just I just find that stuff, you know, just so interesting. Uh, and ex- getting back to where you talked about dog cognition, those those are studies that really I I find work really well together with what I do because what they're doing when they're doing these dog cognition studies is they're they're proving that dogs can think cognitively. So I can take those studies depending on the interest level of my client and where their interests lay and how their brain works and how they think and learn. I might actually refer to those studies because it explains why their dog is doing what their dog is doing and how their dog has the ability and why it, why maybe perhaps other methods that they tried were ineffective. Again, not because those methods don't work, but this is why. The biggest reason is those, those ones are reactive in nature and they take the assumption that a dog is learning right from wrong and learning behavior. And that's what they're grounded in. That's what they're intended and designed to do is to teach wanted behavior and discourage unwanted behavior. When you're dealing with dogs that know the behavior is wrong and there's your adolescent dog, right? Just flips you the bird. It's like, yeah, I, I know what you want. I just, yeah, I don't care anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, there's times like that where I can talk to my clients about, yeah, that that's exactly what he's doing. And here's why. And, and here's a really interesting study that proves that. So they, it does work hand in hand. What, what they're doing with dog cognition are, are studies to learn that. What I'm doing is taking the concepts of cognitive behavioral therapy and using them to either integrate dogs into our homes, rehabilitate uh, behaviors or again, rehabilitate, but to work with dogs and, and to, to address the needs and to be able to have them come into our home and to address aggression, to address anxiety, to socialize. It doesn't really matter what the issue is, just a different way of approaching it based on the reason and the dog. Right. So there is a difference. And then you get canine enrichment, which stimulates their cognitive mind. It's it's uh, games and exercises and and tricks. Uh, so canine enrichment is is really stimulating that side of the brain. So the people who do canine enrichment, they're not necessarily using it for rehabilitation or for training, but they are stimulating. Same with oh agility or dog sports, scent detection. There's there's lots of other facets of working with dogs or just being with dogs that use the cognitive side of the brain, dog walkers, dog groomers, they probably do. Uh, and they're stimulating that cognitive and they're recognizing it. That's all that upper dogology does is take it and put it into a formula that allows you to address your needs. And so your book and your podcast are both also called upward dogology, right? Yes. The podcast it started out upward dogology and, you know, people don't really know what that is. And, and fair enough. Uh, upward stands for urban people with adopted and rescued dogs. But it could be urban people with adolescent and rambunctious dogs. As long as the dog is over six months of age, uh, that that is, you know, and people living in urban environments, that is my 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 client. 
That That's really all it is. And so that's what Upward stands for. The podcast is now called Dog Training Disrupted by Upward Dogology, which gives a little more of an idea of what it, it's not a training podcast. So it's not like you're going to go there and get a step-by-step training manual, which annoys some people, but it's important just to understand the, a lot of what we talked about today and the difference between different methods and why they're different and when you might need it and, and goes through some of my client experiences and what they've done and what they tried and their experiences adopting their dog. And then I talk about rescue organization. I interview rescue organizations. I interview people that are doing great things in the dog world and helping dogs because I think it does take a village and, and a lot of people are just doing really great things. Then I talk about different methods. And like I said, season five, I do a lot of the, the scientific studies and get dive a little bit deeper into the psychology and the science behind it. And my book is just coming out with the second edition. You know, I didn't really talk a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy in it. It was more my experience in the dog world, 34 years in the dog world and how it's developed and changed and how it is sadly still so stagnant. It, it, it's the same, you know, and, and it, it's, it's urgent that we progress. We really need to, to progress, to help these dogs. And there's been a lot of progress. I mean, there's been a lot of progress just in rescue organizations and how many there are and that, the how much support they have and off-leash dog parks and dog daycare. Like there's lots of progress and there's always new gimmicks and gadgets and there's things coming out. But of course, my passion lies with, you know, moving forward to be able to help these dogs. So the book was more, whether people agree with it or disagree with it, it's it's my three decades of being in the dog world and seeing the changes and what's happening. But I did, I did decide to include more on the cognitive behavioral therapy and the street dogs and how they think and learn and just the difference in the methodologies. And I changed the cover because I didn't like the cover. And I also included, you know, I got a lot of very positive feedback. It won an award. So, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, you start, I, I think a lot of authors do that where they'll change their cover to include, uh, you know, testimonials and positive feedback from influential people and, you know, awards, that kind of thing and change the picture. <laughs> when will the second edition be available? Should be it should be within a month to two months. Oh, okay, so this it'll be available this year, in twenty twenty one. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm actually just re- revamping the first uh, couple episodes of my podcast now as we speak, but that should be done next week, just based on feedback on and what I've learned over the year. I mean, that was over a year ago. I did revamp it at one point, and now I'm revamping it again because we all learn. We all learn. I'm learning more about the industry, and I'm learning about how people perceive what they do. And and there are a lot of trainers that are very open-minded to learning and they've contacted me and they've shared with me what their thoughts are. So I, I, I'm also learning. So I like that to reflect that. One of the things I thought was interesting about your podcast, you've kind of touched on it is how each season kind of has like a different focus. So you're referring back to the first season because that has a very different focus from season five and 
Yeah. I, I just thought that was a really interesting way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of how my whole life has been where I just adapt and adjust and <laughs> see what's happening around me and, and off of feedback, what people are interested in and what's working. And, and that's how I learned from dogs as well. Nothing, nothing goes perfectly, but if you're open-minded and you learn and you listen and you watch and take in and, and try and, and adapt accordingly, it's, it's so important. And that, that is across the board when you're dealing with people or working with people. And I think we talked earlier um, about how I actually, when I work with my clients, the way I work with my clients is cognitive behavioral therapy too. I provide them with skills. I listen to them and, and ask them questions and provide them with skills that allow them to make educated decisions. A lot of people, perhaps, for example, are using for example, maybe a collar on their dog that is maybe not the greatest of collars, but they feel like they have to because they have no other choice because otherwise they just simply can't walk their dog. Or maybe they're just not walking their dog because they can't. So as soon as we start implementing upward dogology and they gain a better understanding of their dog and they gain skills and they gain the ability to more calmly walk their dog, they're going to make that decision on their own. You know what? Yeah, I am going to go walk my dog. And no, I'm not going to use this collar uh, because they didn't like it anyway. They just felt that they had no choice, no options. And cognitive behavioral therapy is all about providing options and, and educate. That's how it works. It's a platform how it works. And so I, I also do that with my clients. And it's a beautiful thing to see when, when they get back to me and say, wow, we just did this or we just did that or I can't believe these changes. It happens very quickly for the most part. And they, they are patient people and they are trying and they're told, you know, you need patience or, but productive patience is a wonderful thing. People like productive patience. Right. You need to see progress. You need to see it working. You need to, and then that, that stimulates more patience and more productivity and success. And, and people can go and listen to some of your client stories on your podcast also. Oh, I have one where it's my actual client. I probably should do more of that when my clients come on and talk. That's an idea too. I I really <laughs> enjoyed the episode that you did where you talked about women. And I, I thought it was really interesting that you're saying like women are usually the ones who are contacting you. And you talked just a lot about the emotional journey, you know, and, and how uh, people feeling like they have failed their dog, people feeling like they're failing their family when they have, you know, this dog that's, you know, maybe, I don't know if it's biting them or, you know, being reactive or they can't walk it or control it. And because of who I am as a person, I just really enjoyed, you know, hear, hearing about that. And just like you were saying, you know, how many women are involved in kind of like the rescue world or as groomers. It's so true that in that episode was very, very popular. And it stemmed from getting back to when you asked about my emotions and how it can be that the, that week before uh, writing and recording that episode, it was just a lot of, you know, a lot of, I guess I was just felt inundated by these women that are trying so hard to show their children and their family that you can work through things and not give up and they're emotionally having a difficult time. They're trying to make that decision whether surrender or euthanasia is the way to go. And it completely changed their lives when we worked together and they were just so thankful and they're wonderful clients. And I just decided to do an episode on it, despite the fact that 
it, it happens every week. It, it's it's a lot. It's all the time for 34 years. But I guess that just just hit me at that that moment. And I think women really, men too, but I would say most of my clients are women. The men hop on once. <laughs> once it's, you know, they see it working, then they express an interest. <laughs> um, or, you know, and women kind of relate to cognitive because they, they probably do it in their relationships too. You know, it's cognitive behavioral therapy is a little bit when you're trying to get your uh, other half to to do a project around the house. So you, you kind of make it seem like it's their idea. <laughs> I'm thinking of, so uh, you. <laughs> I'm thinking of my big fat Greek wedding when yeah. she said, you know, the husband's the head of the household, but the woman is the neck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just, uh, yeah, exactly. So it, it, I, yeah, I, and I, I do have clients that are that are guys and they're really, really involved. And it really depends on the relationship and it depends on the people. People are people. And I just, I'm never judgmental. All right. You know, I just, you can't be in this industry, you know, and that's probably the one thing that I think my clients say the most to me is just, it is what it is. And people are people and they've done what they've done. And, and same with dogs, same with dogs. You can't always tell people what to do and, and what's right and what's wrong all the time. You, you just, it is what it is and, and go through it and apply. And same with dogs. They have their, their way of being. It's a matter of adapting and adjusting and having the skills to do so. But yeah, but it doesn't matter to me. Like my clients overall are great. I just love them. <laughs> And you had mentioned, um, and I, I had wanted to ask you about uh, the street dogs and, and what mm. you've learned and seen from dogs in, in different parts of the world. Yes, I have. I love part of my education and my continuing education is to work with dogs with different histories and backgrounds and from different places. And I do really enjoy, well, before COVID, going and working with the rescue organizations in different countries and working with the dogs and just also viewing them and researching them and and just really watching how they're using their cognitive skills to survive on the street. And some dogs do that better than others. But if they've been surviving on the street using cognitive skills, then when we bring them into our homes, we need to harness those cognitive skills because they're already using them. And I use the example a lot of, you know, if you've if you've been working in an industry in a field and then you switch jobs, you switch companies, if you go to that new company and they either um, don't provide you with any basic guidance and direction on how their company works and just lets you acclimatize or decompress, you're, you're probably going to make some mistakes because you need to be given some clear direction. On the other hand, if they treat you like You've never worked in the industry. <laughs> you've you've never, you don't have any skills and, and they start teaching you, you know, you're an electrician and they start teaching you how to screw in a light bulb. You know, you're, you're going to not respect them. You're going to think that they're not aware of who you are and what you do and your abilities. And that's why I really love cognitive behavioral therapy because it harnesses what they already know and it harnesses their thought patterns. And, and you can see these dogs on the street, they, they, they are thinking things through and they're working and that's why they're still alive. That's why they are because 
they've been harnessing those skills. You had a story about the the dogs that watch the traffic lights. Mm. Yeah, that was my most recent podcast. I started to talk about that earlier, and then I got distracted. Squirrel. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, that was in Costa Rica, and then I also noticed it in Mexico as well. Uh, yeah, it was a particular uh, intersection that I spent quite a bit of time at studying the dogs and how they learn the street lights and, and how they learn when to cross and whether they learn that from people or whether they learn that uh, from the actual street light or from the cars, the motion of the cars. And that becomes very important when bringing dogs into an urban world, because if they move when feet move, or if they move based on triggers that we don't necessarily want them to react to, we have to have the ability to change their perception that they need to react based on that trigger. So it's very interesting how they formulate their own reasons for doing a behavior and whether we like or dislike that behavior is no different whether we like it or dislike it. It's coming from a place where they've learned that a certain trigger or action results in them doing a certain action and they feel that that is what they need to do because it's worked for them. So for us to take the approach that we're teaching them right from wrong, which is what conditioning methods do very effectively, they've already decided or have learned that what they're doing is right and we may like it. We might we may get a dog in that 95% of the time what they do is exactly what we want them to do and 5% of the time it's not. But it's coming from the same place in their mind. In their mind, 100% of the time, they're doing what they feel they need to do to achieve their goal. So we can't just tell them 95% of the time we're happy with it because they would be doing it anyway. And then 5% were not. Oh, well, they don't care. So that's when you know you need to switch to cognitive behavioral therapy where it changes the perception to change the behavior instead of just teaching and changing behavior. If that makes sense. Yeah. Do you do any um, train training the trainer type things, or uh, is that in the works? It's in the works. I'd love to. I have a lot of trainers that are interested, not only because they're interested in learning, but I, I think um, that a lot of them are seeing where what they've what they've learned in their their schools and their their own training it's great and it works and it, especially with puppies and with some dogs but with some it's just not and i think it's okay better than okay to admit that to say you know not all my clients want to do avoidance or distraction it doesn't it's not always possible it's not always realistic it, you know is is avoidance a, a, a training technique or is it just something that they're you know maybe forced to do. I, I don't know. Again, we're, I, that's not my area of expertise, but I do know that, that trainers uh, would, would like some other options as well. And they, they see where what they're doing works super well in some cases and not in others. And I think, I think the dog world needs to, and I think they are going in that direction. And I think they are recognizing the need for another non-aversive, effective method that is perhaps a little bit, well, not perhaps a little bit, is completely geared towards dogs with preconceived thought patterns. And I think I, I would love to teach this on a larger scale. It's absolutely my goal. But again, 
maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel as though the industry as a whole um, needs to recognize it and accept it and learn it uh, before it, it's going to have the impact on the larger scale and save a lot of dogs' lives and help a lot of people just because they're very influential. They, they, they are. There's These organizations are very influential. And they're great and they have good intentions. Well, and they're very successful. I mean, you take the fear-free movement, it's done wonders. I know that they still feel like they need to to uh, decrease the, the aversive and, and negative reinforcements. But I, I think they've come a long way. I think they've done amazing work in really positioning positive reinforcement training and non-aversive, you know, balanced training, non-aversive forms as, as the main main methodology. And I, I, I truly believe a lot of people go down the, the slippery slide into the negative because they feel that there's no other option. And if they had the option of cognitive behavioral therapy, it would eliminate yet another large chunk of the people that are still feeling the need to do the negative methods. If, if they had other options that were successful, that sounds like a CBT right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. My brain loves it. I can't help it. I just always do it. I love it. Yeah. Provide solutions. Provide solutions. Yeah. But people have to be, have to want it, right? But I think people do. I mean, the number of clients I have every year for some people do. They do. They need it and they want it. And so if people want to learn more about what you're doing, they can check out your podcast. They can get your book. The second edition's coming out soon. And are you accepting one-on-one -on -one clients right now? Yeah, all over the world. Yeah, I do a lot of Zoom, and I do. Yeah, I am. Again, uh, that's that's specific to people with their own dog, with their own problem with their dog. Um, but uh, my preference would be to to move forward and teach it on a larger scale. But yes, absolutely. I, I, I love my one-on-one -on -one clients. There's also my website. My website has a lot of information as well. And you, uh, is that UpwardDogology.com? Yes, thank you. Yes. And my Instagram, it's interesting, my Instagram, because it's not, it doesn't follow all the, the proper social media where you have your, you know, there there's so many people that are just so social media knowledgeable and, and they are, uh, they're dog trainers or they're, they're animal advocates and, and they have bazillions of followers and they, they say all the right things and their posts are all right. And I, I don't have a ton of followers on Instagram. I'd love to get more, but I really post a lot of client videos. And that's just because I have I have 7,000 videos. I have hundreds of Zoom sessions with clients. I have lots and lots of clients. And, and that is so important. You know, there, there are people that are doing a lot of good things, but they don't necessarily work one-on-one -on -one with clients or they would like to more so. Um, they just, you know, they say all the right things and they're, they're promoting really good, good things. But I think people need to see that these are real people, real clients. And so I, I tend to do a lot of that on my Instagram, whether that's right or wrong. No, um, I, I love also, it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just real life. It's my life every day. It's what I do. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily get that thumbnail correct and I don't get all the right colors and I don't, don't do everything perfectly, but they're, they're the real people. Yep. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm Billy Groom and 
Twitter I'm not as active on, but that's Upward Dogology, and Facebook is Upward Dogology as well. Well, I love what you're doing. I'm so glad we were able to connect. Um, I always like coming at things from a different angle. I approach a lot of things in my life that way, um, much to my family's chagrin sometimes, I think. But <laughs> Yeah, you're awesome. I love your podcast. I, I really, really love it. And, and I'm so impressed with everything you've done and how strong you are. You are wonderful. Good, a good, good person to have around. And I, I think everyone's really glad that you're sharing what you do. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to Billy for her time and for sharing all about cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs with us. I remember back when I very first adopted Lucy, back in 2004 and then Kahlua in 2005, I didn't really know much about dogs or dog behavior or dog training or anything. And two of the greatest lessons that I have learned over the years about dog training is that number one, the dog trainer is not really training your dog, they're training you on how to work with your dog because it's all about repetition and consistency and that part is up to you as the dog owner or dog guardian to integrate this into your daily life with your dog. And so the second big thing that I've learned about dog training over the years is exactly how passionate and how divided dog trainers can be about their methods and about what other people are doing. I've heard a joke that the only thing two dog trainers can agree on is that the third one is wrong. And I guess I'm always so surprised by this because to me, it seems to make sense that there would be so many different methods of working with dogs and teaching dogs. I mean, not all people learn the same way. In fact, I'm going to tell you a secret right now about me. I do not like watching videos. <laughs> I hate it. I would much rather read. I actually read rather fast, I have found over the course of my life. And so to me, it's so much more efficient for me to take in information by reading than by sitting there and watching a video. My mind starts to wander. I'm looking at other things. It's really not my preferred method of taking in information. And my husband finds this horrible. Like he would much rather sit and watch a video or listen to something and take information in that way. Almost at some point every night, Tim is in his computer room and he's watching something crazy on YouTube. One day it might be something about how to be a barber and cut your own hair. And the next day it might be something about aliens. And sometimes he'll send me these links to a video and it's like 10 minutes long or 20 minutes long. And I'm like, oh my God, like I just want to read it. But neither one of us is sitting there calling the other one cruel and unusual when I'm like, oh, you need to read this. And he'll be like, oh, you need to watch that. So again, I guess this is why I find it so interesting that dog training community is so divisive. There's so many different dogs with so many different backgrounds, have had so many different experiences, and there's always going to be a different way to reach them, and, and not everything is going to work for every dog. So I just really love Billy's outside-of-the-box thinking. I love anybody that's approaching problem-solving from a totally different angle, and I appreciate that her methods are also force-free and non-aversive. She says the only tool that she's using is your dog's brain. And so to learn more about Billy and Upward Dogology, make sure you check the links in the show notes. I'll have links to her podcast as well as to the second edition of her book that's coming out. 
We'll also have a photo gallery of photos that Billy provided us and links to her website and social media accounts. And if you're on Instagram and Facebook, make sure you check out the videos that she's sharing of her working with her clients. I hope this is a great resource for you or if someone you know is dealing with a situation where their dog has behavior that they can't handle, whether it's you know fear-based or aggression-based, Billy could be a great tool to the toolbox uh, for somebody dealing with this kind of situation. And I love having additional tools to add to my toolbox, just in case they're ever needed. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. Again, make sure you check out the show notes for links to anything that we discussed today, as well as to find out more information about Billy. I also have links to my email and social media accounts. And remember, if you want to send a shout out to a dog that has been a healer, a teacher, or an inspiration in your life, make sure you send that message to me before October 20th to be included in the second anniversary podcast episode. You can always find me at Erin, E-R-I-N, at BelieveInDogPodcast.com, at BelieveInDogPodcast on Facebook, and at BelieveInDogPodcast with underscores on Instagram. And if you're on the Clubhouse uh, chat app, you can find me at BelieveInDogPod. If you'd like to support the podcast or if you found any of this information helpful, it would be wonderful if you would leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Your kind words and ratings always help more people find the show. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.